Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Making workers more productive is a key ingredient for economic growth. The silver lining of the first two years of the pandemic was strong U.S. productivity growth. But 2022 has been a productivity downer. Should we expect more dismal numbers in the years to come? Or is a productivity boom on the horizon? To explore that question and to consider public policies that might facilitate faster productivity growth, I'm back with Michael Mandel, Vice President and Chief Economist at the Progressive Policy Institute. In the first part of our conversation, we discussed the capital investments and job-creating power of America's major tech companies. Go back and give it a listen if you haven't already. And now, on to part two. What do you make of this recent uh, Chips and Science Act and perhaps a move in the United States toward what some people call industrial policy, a, word, a phrase that can mean a lot of things, but I think in this case it means subsidizing sectors that the government thinks are important, especially in competition with some other countries? So that's a really good question. I mean, I have to say quite honestly that I took my eye off the semiconductor industry for, for a couple of years because I assumed we were in good shape. Right. <laughs> and then when I sort of looked over, I sort of said, wait a second, something happened here that all of a sudden we're not in good shape anymore. So I support, I support the investment in this sector. I don't consider this to be classic industrial policy at this point. I just consider this to to be doing what we've done in the past. We, we did this, you know, with memory chips, which is, we, you know, we, there was government intervention, in, intervention with Semitech. You go in, you sort of say, here's a sector, we need to fix it. Let's just go ahead and spend some money here. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten to the point of being strategic yet. This was not a, this was not a really a strategic investment. This was just saying, let's just throw money at this problem. We know that, you know, at the margin, throwing money at this problem is going to, is going to, get us further along than we need to be. Um, do I think that more of this is needed? I really think you, the country the country you mentioned, of course, was China. And um, I do think it's a really, China's innovation policy is a really interesting question because we haven't had an experience with authoritarian countries that were successfully innovative. And... For a lot of for a lot of reasons, because it seem, just seems that capitalism works better mm-hmm. to sort of produce good innovation. If it turns out that authoritarian innovation works, basically many countries in around the world will want to imitate that model because it's because it's much more comfortable for governments to sort of run innovation from the top. Mm-hmm. The only reason why they run it, why they allow innovation to bubble up from the bottom, is because doing it the other way doesn't work. So, I mean, what I think. What I would expect to see in the U.S. is is a combination of the two, a lot that is bubble up from the bottom, which is um, we will be faced with technological and social and environmental challenges that we can't imagine, and we have to have invested the money in the new technologies before we get there, but we don't know what the problems are going to be. We don't know what the technologies are going to be. We discovered this in the pandemic where it turned out that the mRNA technology, which was sitting on the shelf for 20 years, was a solution to a problem that we 
didn't even know it was a solution to. Okay. But if we hadn't been investing in it, so it wasn't there, it wouldn't have been available as quickly as it was. We had sort of a, um, statistically, we had this sort of productivity boom or stronger uh, in, uh, during, during the pandemic, at least in 2020, 2021. And people read about a lot of technologies happening, maybe AI spreading, mRNA, CRISPR, rockets. The first half of this year, statistically, not so good with productivity. Um, these numbers tend to jump around a lot. So what's sort of the reality going forward? So as you know, okay, productivity numbers, especially total factor productivity numbers, are useless over any period less than 10 years. Um, so we mentioned earlier the, the, the shift of hours from the, from the, um, market sector, from the household sector to the market sector, um, as part of e-commerce. Remember the hours in the, in the household sector are not measured as part of the productivity basis. If you actually include them, it significantly adds to the productivity growth in this period, because what's happened is if you, if we sort of take the total amount of hours being put into con consumer distribution, which is both the market hours and the non-market hours. Then what's happened is that the market hours has gone up, which is what usually, which is what shows up in the, in, in the official productivity numbers. So if you look at retailing, you don't actually see very much of a productivity gain because in fact, the, per the hours have gone up a lot, but they're not counting the fallen hours in the household right. sector. So what's happened is when you count them the fall of, how the how fall of hours in the household sector, Productivity growth, I haven't done these calculations again recently, but, you know, go up, go, goes up a lot. Quarter percentage point a year, half a percentage point a year. It's actually a significant increase. In the, the sector economy-wide. Economy-wide. Right. Because these are, it's a lot of hours. Right. And so to the degree to which telehealth, for example, you know, removes the necessity of people to sort of drive to the doctor's office. If we're not including those hours in our calculation of productivity growth, we're missing the big effect. And you can go through the economy like that, you know, places where there were movements outside of the um, uh, reduction of hours in the market in the, in the household sector just not being counted. Now that doesn't that even sort of leaves out increases in um, um, output for other, other, that's in the, in the info sector that's not being measured. But I need to sort of go back to something else that you said, which was the, the productivity boom that we saw in the past. Yeah. My belief is that a lot of that was mismeasured too, mm -hmm. okay, but, but over-measured, okay, because a, a lot of it, I think, was... Well, period, uh, when? when well, now what period? The er, I'm talking about the early 2000s. Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, there was a, there was a the 2002, the apparent boom from 2000, 2007 increase in productivity. Right. I think so we had the sort of the nineties boom and then we had the, um, then we had sort of the, the pop of the internet stock bubble, but, but statistically we still saw a lot of productivity growth I, after that. And I think a lot, I mean, my belief looking at the numbers a lot is that a lot of that is mismeasurement of a shift in, um, in purchasing from us manufacturing firms to say overseas manufacturing mm -hmm. firms, which are being picked up as a productivity gain rather than a rather than a price drop. Now we're getting to really abstruse stuff, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. Here's the but does, that doesn't make me feel good because I like seeing years of high productivity I understand growth that. and we I understand haven't seen as many as I would like you haven't seen, since but, 1970. But, but that actually explains why it is that people are so pissed. Right. right. This is, 
Because in the 90s, we had high productivity growth driving high wage growth. That, that's right. And then you did not have high wage growth after that because, especially in, say, re retailing was in some sense a bellwether industry. right? We thought originally McKinsey was writing reports about retailing being a high productivity industry. And then they sort of realized it was a low productivity industry. And in fact, wages, real wages stayed low for many years and did not start increasing until Amazon and the other e-commerce companies came in and started taking away the high, the, the really low wage jobs were moving out of retail into e-commerce fulfillment as much higher wage jobs. So, so what's happened, what I look for is I look for wage growth. Right. If I'm not seeing real wage growth, I assume that I'm not seeing productivity gains because I'm seeing real wage growth in the areas that I think real productivity gains are happening, whether or not they're being measured or not. Do I think it's going to spread to the rest of the economy? I do. It's, we, we, we know what it looks like. The question is, um, are we ready for this? Are we ready for telehealth? Mm -hmm. Let's just stick with telehealth for a second. You could eliminate big chunks of healthcare workers, okay, and costs, and costs on the consumer side by shifting as much as you could to telehealth. That becomes a byproduct of the money that's invested in broadband and 5G. Right. And then the question is, are you measuring this correctly? And are you doing what you need to do to sort of make this work? In the case of telehealth, of course, there's a licensing problem, being able to sort of, you know, get um, healthcare connections in a state that's different than yours. Right. Isn't always the easiest thing. Some people will listen to this and say that economist is being flippant about job loss. That this is a another job killing technology. I think I think what you want to think about is that is that we have not seen any evidence of job killing at all. What you may very well see. Well, let's go let's go to the autonomous vehicle ones and the, and the truck drivers. Your autonomous vehicle, your autonomous truck is going to have to be kept in really good repair. It's going to have to be kept highly tuned because it's out there by itself. Right. And there isn't, you know, if you want to do this, you know, you want to run it all night, right, you, either you're going to have somebody sleeping in the cab right. or you actually have to have something that is as highly, as highly um, uh, kept in as good repair as the average airplane is, right. which is really a lot. And so you're talking about having a very large repair force and you're shifting truck drivers from a dangerous job to a less dangerous job that is better paid. So you kind of, you also might need more road maintenance people. Cause if you imagine a future where you'll have, you know, cars driving 80 miles an hour, six inches apart that, from that, each other, you better, you better not have too many that's potholes. A, that, that's exactly right. So you're, you're thinking about, so we, but some people don't want to twitch the jobs, though. Well, that's they're not going to want. They're saying. I think that's imp I think that's important for us to respect. Right. Okay. That is why. But I. But I also think. People like their lifestyles, and they don't want to necessarily switch from a job that is partly physical to a job that's all non-physical. And what we're doing, what the e-commerce example tells us, is that we can actually produce a lot of jobs that are of, of varying types right. that are technologically enabled. 
what the telehealth tells us is that we have a lot of telehealth maintenance people that we didn't that we didn't have before that are very practical and so i think that um if we stay on the track that we are we don't i'm not scared of i mean i find it really weird when people sort of say oh we produced too many jobs this month in the jobs report because i'm scared of inflation right. no 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 you should be you shouldn't be scared of inflation you should be scared of low productivity right. all right you, you, jobs are jobs are good productivity is good i like oh, i like both when we look back on this decade from 2030, or maybe 2035, will we say, well, that was a high productivity game where we sort of stepped up? Or we'll say, or we still be having this conversation of what do we need to do to boost productivity? Well, I'm gonna take a step back here. I think we're gonna discover that a lot more people are being kept out of the labor force by post COVID, uh, by long COVID than we think right now. And that, that we're gonna be running into labor shortages. Right. And as we run into labor shortages, it's going to be incentive for companies to invest in technology in a way that they didn't do this before. And so we're going to start seeing real growth in productivity as investments in technology spreads from the digital sector and in a few other sectors into the rest of the economy. And we'll let's circle back around to healthcare. We want what we want from healthcare. So look at those capital investment numbers, then, right? That's why the capital investment numbers are. If you look at if you look at capital investment over the last. 10 years, that it's been running about half the, half the rate as, as it was in the previous 10 years. Not just in the U.S., but in Europe. Not in China, though. That's really what the big distinction is, is that China did not have the capital investment slowdown that the developed world have. So we need investment in technology. We need a willingness to change. Uh, we need investment not just in information technology, but in, but in, but in the biosciences and that we need a regulatory structure that is flexible enough to adjust to this. Here's your best guess. My best I've brought this up no, several no, no, times no, no. in this podcast that uh, Eric Brynjolfsson and Robert Gordon, the economists, are, have, a, have a bet. They have a public bet about yeah. productivity growth. Oh, oh in, the, oh, in the end, I've got to go with Eric. Eric has been excessively uh, uh, sanguine up to this point because I think he, I mean, I've, the problems with the, the numbers have have up to this po- until have up to this point leaned in, the f- in favor of overestimating productivity growth, but I do think that coming out of this pandemic, that the combination of information technology and biosciences, and whatever more investment we do in material sciences, right. is going to be extremely important. Well, well, how, how does how does just, just briefly how does I, mean, I understand sort of how IT might affect productivity productivity growth? How would the biosciences? Because we'd well, be healthier and work longer? Or? Well, that that is one thing, okay, but another thing has to do with agriculture, uh, okay? If you right. think, and or and related to that, uh, energy, okay, which is- I know the CRISPR, Jennifer Duna, she's been, uh, I think, working with, I think she has an agricultural startup. It's the, the agriculture stuff is really important at this point because if we're moving into a period of, of changing climate, and we're moving into a period where um, foods, food and water supplies are really important, then anything we can do to sort of increase the productivity of the agriculture sector. A new green and, revolution. And, it's an, and also its ability to, to adjust quickly is just really important. It's, you know, it, and the fact is, is that we just walked, we just collectively as a global economy 
you know, have survived, you know, the worst pandemic in a hundred years, basically without touching the growth rate of the economy. I mean, it touched it, it did whatever it did, but, but mainly we kept going. And the reason why we kept going is we had invested so much in biosciences, especially the U S is that we had the technology on the shelf that we needed fully operational, you know, now we could sort of say, well, it doesn't do exactly what we want it to do. That's not important. Okay. It was there. It was ready. It was to the degree that people were willing to, to, to roll it out. And I think what we're going to find is that we're going to have a lot of other um, challenges that come up, for which having a strong biosciences capacity is absolutely essential. Information technology is great, but it doesn't cover the full range of innovations. The place where we're missing is material sciences. Now, other countries have spent more on material sciences than we have. If you go back to your question about industrial, industrial policy, I would say that the main thing that we have to do, which is actually with the semiconductors is important because semiconductors is basically about material sciences. Is it more investment in material sciences? I recall the, it wasn't the old nanotechnology initiative. Wasn't that, ba- despite people had you know, thought this was going to create tiny machines that built things. It was basically a material science. It was initiative. basically material science. So the nanotechnology, yeah. you know, once, ag- once again, that's something that we spent some money on, then we stopped spending money on. It's still lurking out there as a possibility. We may have it, we, there may be stuff on the shelf right now that we can reach out for when we need it. If you remember, um, a lot of times, technologies, um, the uh, the glass on on um, on uh, smartphones was originally a um, corning glass right. that they had made, designed for. You know what they could do with it, though. It, it was not good. They had designed to be <laughs> to, to be shatterproof. Auto windows and it was just bad for that, but it was in their it was, it was in their draw. Right. And the thing is about Corning, of course, is that they had such continuity in their research capabilities that they actually remembered it. Right. Uh, so, so I'm on I'm on I'm on the the plus side of this. I'm not. I mean, you know, um, I think that I'm of the school of the future happens slowly than all at once. All right, and that's that's. It's also how we go bankrupt. That's that's. <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit about my theory about innovation, both negative, positive, and negative black swans. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, we have no, we have very little ability to predict technology. We have very little ability to predict what the problems we're going to face are. What we do have the ability is, is that we have something bad happens, can we ameliorate the negative consequences, and when we come up with a positive good surprise. Can we take advantage of that so that we had a big negative happen with the pandemic and we managed to deal with it? Now, the question is, can we take advantage of new technologies to push things forward or are they going to languish on the shelf? And that's really the answer to your question, that they sort of chop off the bottoms of the, the, down, the down rungs, right? boost the top rungs and the overall the overall growth is higher. What we've also described there is a, is a kind of a, a kind of a societal resilience, the ability to do that. So since, it's, uh, since I work at a think tank, and you work at a think tank, <laughs> what's your, what, what is the five point policy plan there? Oh God. Just pull a, that, that one right out of your wallet on, a, on an embossed card. So if I was, let's, let's actually just go back to manufacturing. Cause that's the one that I've sort of thought about the most, which is that, well, in, in the broader sense, in terms of regulating technology, don't destroy the, don't destroy the goose that laying the golden egg. Right. 
you can regulate it and you should regulate it if you see the things that are wrong. If you have definitive things that you think are wrong, and you can say, don't do that. Right. Okay, we can punish you. And then you can sort of judge for yourself whether or not people have sort of followed that or not. Um, if companies if companies are doing well, encourage them to expand. Encourage them to expand because that's the best way to sort of make sure that higher productivity is in more places of the economy rather than fewer. In terms of manufacturing, which is so crucial, make sure that the technology is available at a local level for anybody to use so that we have a chance to experiment with it. The problem is we don't have enough experimentation going on. How do we, how, so how does government do that? Well, you can on, on a state level, you can imagine setting up centers that anybody could come into and say, you know, use the latest, the, not, not, not a consumer model 3D printer, but the latest production model one. All right. Or have access to a robot, you know, the latest model robot, not, not an older one. Be able to sort of say, what could you do with this that is different? Okay. Because you want to be able to sort of throw smart people at the technology. One of the great things about information technology, the personal computer, is that it was available to everybody. What you described, what you described, there almost reminds me of like a world's fair, uh, you know, where where people where, pe where technology would be presented to people and they could interact with it. And we haven't had a world's fair yes, in a long time, yes, have we? we? We've we've uh, I, we, you, we've covered this topic in the, too, in the newsletter. So what you're describing is a maybe a, kind of a, a world's fair, but for small business. You can imagine that, yeah. okay, and with with spinoffs for it. All right, so I'm not talking about industrial policy in a classic sense. What I'm talking about is is the is the um, there's a lot of technologies that are out there. We don't have enough people working with them. We don't have enough financing available at the at the at the at the entrepreneurial level. Right. That we want to be able to sort of make sure that they that they have that they have available to them, because then we'll have the creativity that we need to sort of move to the next stage. But having said that, I'm I've you know I'm I'm feeling more positive going forward. Okay, the next ten years, I'm not going to put a number on productivity growth because I'm really getting more and more um, doubtful of our ability to measure it. Remember, if you did, remember a number and a date, but not both. That's the, class, okay. that's the, that's the classic it, it, stock it, market strategies. Give me it, it, <laughs> it's okay. I've been at this. As, as you know, Jim, I've been at this a long yeah. time. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, what I usually forecast is big ups and downs, with, with the ups being bigger than the downs. Okay. And how could that be wrong? Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much.